Well, who would have thought something I talked about in the last podcast actually turned out to be not nonsense and indeed entirely valid days afterwards. So it turns out there was a blood bottle crisis. It seems to be over now, which is good news. We're already on to the next problem. Now, where to start? And I mean that in all seriousness, because every day it feels like we're being whacked with a giant stick and it's almost impossible to keep up with the constant change new rules, stipulations, you must do this, you must do that. If you don't do this, you won't get that. And even though it's just been the summer holidays, I suspect most of us feel like general practice could do with a bit of a break at the moment. Well, don't look to our new health secretary for any degree of support. No, he's stated in the, in Parliament that it's high time GPs open their doors and get back to normal. Well, I feel like it's high time that we had a health secretary that wasn't a massive bellend, but it seems that none of us are being realistic. All of this makes me crave just having a simpler life. And so I've come up with a business idea where I cycle around Oxford on my bicycle doing home visits to the elderly who are fecally impacted, whacking in an enema or two and sorting them out. I'm going to call it Deliver Poo. If you want in to help people get it out, Send me a message. It's going to be the next big thing. It's Friday, the 17th of September, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Hot Topics Podcast again. Neil Tucker here to take you through the next 15 minutes or so. This is the first episode in season three of the Hot Topics podcast. Yes, we've made it into three seasons. I can barely believe it. I know what you're thinking. Didn't you put a podcast cast out just a few weeks ago? Yes, and it is an entirely arbitrary decision of mine when I decide to call it season three. But we're almost at the two-year mark, so thank you for joining us on the ride. And I'm definitely still learning. Today, I'm doing this podcast slightly differently. I'm standing up for the first time. Normally, I would sit down. That doesn't doesn't sound like much of a distinction, but I've been doing way too much sitting down recently. So I need to kind of I need to kind of like stretch my body out and I've had to adapt to my setup a little bit. So my microphone is much higher. I've had to wrap. This goes to show you how much of a professional outfit we have here. I've had to wrap my dirty kitchen apron around the boom arms so that it doesn't give loads of vibrating noise like it did for the intro. But I doubt you've tuned in today to hear about the intricacies of home podcast setups. You probably want to hear some primary care research and medicine news. So we are going to have a little look at some stuff on COVID. Yeah, sorry, guys. Um, It lingers on, doesn't it? And so um, there is some interesting new research out. So firstly, some stuff about why we're giving boosters to the immunosuppressed and also then why we're now going to give boosters to ourselves and to our patients based around some of the latest figures that have come out of um, Israel, uh, a paper that's come out from around the world about um, the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, both of those in the New England Journal of Medicine. Then we're going to have a look at a paper on quadruple blood pressure therapy in a single pill uh, for blood pressure management. That's in The Lancet this week. And then there's been a big thing last week in the BMJ on medical cannabis, suggesting that we should start prescribing it to people. That's an interesting one, right? So we're going to have a look at all of that. So let's kick off with COVID vaccinations and flu vaccines, I guess. Does anyone have a clue what's going on at the moment? Will they? Won't they? Can't they? Should they? I, for one, am baffled. Even the NHS leaders have said that co-administration of vaccines may not be practical. 
Well, let's be honest, there's loads of things that um, the NHS has made general practice do that isn't really practical. That's never stopped them before. And that's never stopped us sorting the problem out either. So what we really need is just to have an answer. And it sounds like we've got one now. The answer is, yes, you can do it if you can do it. So lots of practices are starting vaccinating again, which is great for patients and maybe okay for practices. Could go either way. So we're giving them. Lots of us over the next few weeks will be having them. But is there really any point? So there's two issues here. We're really two groups of people. So there's the immunocompromised or the immunosuppressed. And then there's everyone else. So this is some research that's been published in the Lancet well, as a preprint so far. This was actually reported in the BMJ. It was the Octave trial, observational cohort trial, T-cells, antibodies and vaccine efficacy in SARS-CoV-2. They did well to come up with that acronym, didn't they? And that found in 600 patients who had a weakened immune system, either because of the underlying disease or because of the treatment that, were, that they were receiving for the uh, for the disease, it showed that four in 10 of them had lower antibody levels than healthy recipients who had two doses of a COVID vaccine. So having uh, a few less antibodies is not necessarily such a bad thing, at least you've still got some, but out of the whole group, 11% failed to seroconvert at all, even after the second dose of vaccine, and they failed to generate any antibodies whatsoever. This is particularly true for people with anchor-associated vasculitis, 72% failed to seroconvert, and 98% of those with inflammatory arthritis didn't make any antibodies. So these are really high risk groups now. Not only are they not protected against COVID, but they've also got nasty underlying conditions, which make them more likely to suffer poor prognosis if they do catch the infection. Now, this may have been because of the medications they were receiving for their disease. So it seems that those who are on rituximab, so that's a treatment that's used for anchor-associated vasculitis, they had a really low seroconversion rates. And perhaps this doesn't really come as a surprise to many of us. If you're having medications that are dampening down your immune response, then it's probably going to have a negative effect when you have a vaccination. Now, I guess it's debatable whether for those who haven't seroconverted at all, a third dose is going to make much difference. But for the rest of the group and those particularly who just have slightly lower levels of immunity generated by the vaccine, then it could make a big difference for them. So definitely, definitely, we want to be encouraging that group to come and get their, their booster shots. But what about the majority of the population who aren't immunocompromised? Well, there's been a lot in the media about this, hasn't there? A sort of toing and froing about uh, the decision of when we should or shouldn't start to give booster doses. And until the last week or so, it hasn't even looked like we were definitely going to do it. The science hasn't um, necessarily strongly supported it, but it does seem to be coming out in favour now. And there's two papers that are published in the New England Journal of Medicine this week, which really do strengthen the, the notion of a third dose. So firstly, we've just got a longer term follow up trial on the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. So I think this is um, from participants who are in um, having the vaccination in the early stages of the pandemic. And they're now publishing some of the follow up data where they've kept on checking their um, antibodies and their immune responses. 
the actual rate of infections that they were seeing as well. And they found that the vaccine efficacy did decline over time. So it starts off really good. So within a week to two months of the second dose, the vaccine efficacy was 96%. And then from two to four months, it dropped down to 90%. And then after four months, it had gone down to 84%. So one presumes that that's going to keep dropping. And I guess the question is whether you then start seeing quite a significant drop off. And one wonders if that's what we witnessed in Israel. As you all, all know, they were very successful with their vaccination campaign. They vaccinated their uh, population really early on, really rapidly. And so for a lot of them, it's now been quite a few months since they had their second dose. And we started to hear those reports about um, case numbers going up and um, hospitalizations and mortality starting to creep up more than we've seen in the UK. And the speculation was, of course, that um, that vaccine efficacy was starting to really fall off after, um, after a, that sort of six month period or so. So the second paper in the New England Journal was data that's come out of Israel really rapidly published because they're looking at data from the end of July through to the end of August. So they were really quick getting on that third dose in Israel. This was specifically looking at um, 60 plus years old, fully vaccinated, and they'd had to have the second dose at least five months before. They all received a third dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech. So no chopping and changing here, sticking with what they started with. Now, the way they've reported the rates has taken me a little while to get my head around. And I think probably the way they've summarised it is the simplest way to think about it. So the rate of confirmed infection was lower in the booster group than the non-booster group by a factor of 11. The rate of severe illness was lower by a factor of almost 20. And then they also looked at the rate of confirmed infections at least 12 days after vaccination. So, of course, that's going to be after, like, well after the period at which you would think that someone who just, just become infected just as they were having the vaccination would start to manifest symptoms. And the rate of confirmed infection fell by a factor of over five. In the discussion, they basically equate this level of effectiveness as being equivalent to um, boosting your vaccine efficacy levels back up to 95%. So that's really good news, positive support of having this booster dose. Of course, it is complicated by having a number of different vaccinations that we've used in the UK. So this is specifically data for the Pfizer vaccine. You can't necessarily assume the same is going to be true for AstraZeneca, Moderna and the other ones that have now become available. But for now, it would seem reasonable to assume that we're likely to see a similar effect with the other vaccines and just crack on until the data, more specific vaccine data becomes available. All right, enough about COVID. Let's go back to a general practice staple and think about hypertension. So. This is a paper in The Lancet. Initial treatment with a single pill containing quadruple combination of quarter doses of blood pressure medications versus standard dose monotherapy in patients with hypertension, the quartet trial. 
So combination blood pressure medication has been around for a long time. We just don't really use it much in the UK, much more widely used in um, other countries and throughout Europe, in the States as well. And you remember on the course, the Hot Topics course a couple of years ago, we talked a lot about the European um, hypertension guidelines that recommend using combination um, blood pressure treatment from the outset, from the point of diagnosis, as it's already been demonstrated to generally improve blood pressure control. Someone's clearly been sitting around and done the maths. If two is better than one, then four must be twice as good as that. Let's stick it all in a pill at the same time. It's like the Red Bull challenge for hypertension treatment. Of course, just sticking someone on four blood pressure medications when they've been entirely drug naive is a really bad idea, which is why they've gone with quarter doses. And this buys into this idea that combinations of low dose antihypertensives um, are generally more effective and cause less side effects than higher doses of single agents. So this was a double-blind, randomised controlled trial of adult Australians with hypertension, and they were either given the quad pill, which is herbisartan, 37.5 milligrams, and lodipine, 1.25 milligrams. That's a low dose, isn't it? In dapamide, 0.625 milligrams and bisoprolol, 2.5 milligrams. So all of that's in one tablet. Or they were in the control group, which was indistinguishable monotherapy control, as they describe it, which contained herbisartan at 150 milligram dose. So the main group were followed up for 12 weeks. And if they failed to meet the blood pressure targets during this period, Additional medications could have been added in, starting with amlodipine 50. And then they also took a small group and they followed that lot up for 12 months to see the longer term effects. So ultimately, the, the results came out in favour for the quad pill and by quite a substantial margin. So at that 12 week group, the systolic blood pressure was seven millimetres of mercury lower and they had a 30% better chance of having their blood pressure satisfactorily controlled. Unsurprisingly, because of this, more people in the, um, in the control group had to have up titration of their treatment compared with the intervention group. No difference in adverse event rates between the two of them. So uh, things looking good for the quad pill. And actually in that um, subgroup that they followed up for 12 months, then they had an even better response to their to their blood pressure. So 7.7 millimeters of mercury mean reduction in systolic, and overall 81% of them had their blood pressure um, successfully controlled. It seems to me that this treatment has everything going for it. It's simple, it's safe, it's more effective than what we're doing at the moment. Cost may be a barrier, and I have absolutely no idea what they would what they might charge in the future for this pill. But I suspect that the biggest barrier is going to be us as the clinicians. We as humans inherently dislike change much of the time, whether that's because of the hassle or we just feel a bit uncomfortable. It's just not what's normal to us. But perhaps this accumulating data for antihypertensive combination therapy might eventually start winning us over. So lastly, we come on to the BMJ and last week's edition had a full on six pages on research commentary and editorials on medical cannabis or cannabinoids for chronic non-cancer and cancer related pain. 
And this is part of their rapid recommendation series, which is where they feel that the strength of the evidence is sufficient to try and change practice and they want to get the message out as fast as possible. And to cut a long story short, as part of their meta-analysis of dozens of papers looking at medical cannabis for chronic pain, they came to the conclusion that there is weak evidence that cannabis is better than standard care and that it can help with their chronic pain. They summarise the potential benefits. So they say compared with standard care, 100 more out of 1,000 people will have a reduction in pain, 40 more will have improved physical function, and 60 more will have improved sleep. They found no important difference between um, using medical cannabis versus standard care for emotional function um, and social function. And there was a slight payoff in terms of short-term harms with a small number of people having uh, greater cognitive impairment, drowsiness, or impaired attention. The actual research paper describes this as moderate to high certainty evidence and describes results of a small to very small improvement in pain relief, physical functioning and sleep quality for patients with chronic pain. Now, the linked editorial phrases it slightly differently, and this probably makes it slightly better for us to understand, I think. It says that the paper indicates moderate evidence of a clinically important decrease in pain for a small or very small proportion of patients. And this highlights an important difference between looking at averages that are reported in trial papers and the real world. Because you might think that lots of people get a small amount of benefit, but it's more likely that a small number of people get a large amount of benefit. But the tricky part there is that most people get no benefit whatsoever, but it's teasing out those ones that do. And I guess, as with so many treatments that we give, often it is about giving it a go, trialing the treatment, seeing if it works, and if it doesn't, stop it. And if it does, fantastic, we've actually made a difference. The BMJ does point out a few of the caveats here. So this applies to people with cancer and non-cancer pain, neuropathic, nociceptive and nociplastic pain. I actually don't know what nociplastic pain is. I'm going to have to look that one up later. Um, But it does not apply to inhaled medical cannabis, recreational cannabis, which is probably what most of our patients are using, um, or patients receiving end-of-life care. Somewhat frustratingly, nowhere in the six pages that the BMJ have uh, used to discuss medical cannabis, do they actually state what treatment would be indicated by this research. It should be a mixture of uh, cannabidiol, CBD, and THC. You'll remember that THC is the component of cannabis which makes you high, whereas the CBD is the one that's meant to kind of like relax you more. In medical treatments, you don't want too much THC, and indeed patients don't like it when they have too much in it. It just makes them feel weird. But there seems to be, you've got to to get the balance between the two just right. And so the paper talks about titrating the two against each other. That seems to be very complicated to me. The editorial really only suggests that nabilone or nabiximols are appropriate medications to offer patients. But of course, we can't offer our patients any of these. So in fact, our and patients' options are really limited at the moment. 
it counsels us, don't tell people to go out and start smoking cannabis. So that sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? Don't start going smoking cannabis. That's going to give you lung cancer eventually. Um, you can't put it in brownies because that's going to make you fat. Don't vape it. That's going to give you pneumonitis. And you probably don't want to be dry, buying drugs on street corners anyway. What about the cannabis oils that you can go and get in a health food shop or on the internet? Well, they're not looked at in these studies either. So that's also not something that we can be selling up onto patients. Having said all of that, I'm actually quite in favour of the idea about doing medical research on, in inverted commas, illicit drugs and looking to see where they do have benefit. And it is very welcome to have a new evidence-based analgesic drug class when we've been trying to get rid of so many that have caused so many problems for our patients. Okay, so I think at the start of this, I suggested that maybe I would be talking for 15 minutes and I've gone well over that. So I think probably we better stop there. That's enough for this week. Sorry if some of the sound quality hasn't seemed great today. I think that this is just recorded through my laptop microphones as opposed to my actual proper microphone. Um, and I've just realised that's why there's this big difference. You live and learn. I don't have time to re-record it now, but I'll get it right next time. It's been a pleasant diversion for me. Thank you. I've been writing the hot topics, health or level, all of this week. The new course starts tomorrow. So we're doing uh, a webinar tomorrow, uh, all day hot topics course. And um, that's focused on Scotland. And then next week on the 25th, I think that's the Saturday, then Simon Curtis will be leading that one, which is the standard full hot topics course. Please do join us for that. Everything's still in webinar form at the moment. Everything's virtual. That does keep it simple for you trying to get to these courses, but you never know. At some point, hopefully, we'll start doing some face-to-face -face stuff, but it's clear we're not out of the woods just yet. Next week, I'm writing the Green GP course. So that's going to come out. Uh, uh, we're going to do a webinar on that in October. So please do join us. Then it's going to be covering some environmental issues relating to primary care, how we can save our practices money, improve our patient care and help the environment all at the same time. So do um, do keep an eye out for that. And as ever, you can get in touch. So we're on Twitter at GP Hot Topics or at Dr. Neil Tucker. We're on Facebook and you can email hottopics at nbmedical.com. And do get in touch because I'd be really interested to know as we've started season three, where you'd like to see this podcast going. So is this the right mix for you? Do you like to hear me moaning for a bit and then talking about some research? Is there other things you'd like to, to listen to? So um, maybe you would like to see more interviews with key members of the medical community. Maybe you'd like to have more interviews with key people from research or um, some people who are at the sort of um, front line. Um, do, do get in touch. I'd be really interested to hear your views. Anyway, that's enough from me. Thanks for joining us. Have a lovely weekend. Look after yourself. Bye-bye.